Good morning. All right, it's good to have you with us. Thank you on the right side for showing up today. As I tend to look right to left, I didn't want to be looking at nothing but empty chairs. So I do appreciate you coming uh, and being supportive. Uh, as um, Mike has already said, there's so many that generally are with us who are out because of you know, vacation. It's that time of year, um, sickness, and then also uh, you know, a newborn baby. So we celebrate that fact. But I want to spend time just for a moment uh, in prayer and prayer for them, different groups of people for various reasons as well as just that God will uh, illuminate his word to us today. Um, so Father God, just thank you for the opportunity to already be here um, for you, Lord, who dwells in us as we come together and we worship you. Uh, Father, as we know, many are missing in our midst today for various reasons that have already been named. Lord, that you be with those who are sick, uh, that you would provide healing to them, bring them comfort. Lord, we rejoice with, with Micah and Megan, Lord, with the newborn, the baby of Esther, that you would just uh, bless them in, in the days and the years to come. As a new parent, Lord, as you give them rest. And Lord, for those who are traveling, you provide safety and protection. Lord, as we look into your word today, may you illuminate the scriptures to us. Lord, I'm definitely not a speaker, but God, I pray that you would just speak through me. And I'll use your words, um, Lord, to work through the lives of individuals in this room. So, Lord, that we can understand who you are, um, who the third person is the Holy Trinity is in the Spirit, what He does in our life, what His works are, and as we look forward to the next four weeks, um, just thinking on this topic and on this person of the Spirit. Lord, guide us uh, in Your Word today. Give us wisdom and clarity and insight. In Your name I pray. Amen. So as you know, we've... we've kind of been working our way as we do as a church through um, different books of the Bible. Uh, we've been going through John now uh, I think a little over a year, um, maybe even longer. And we've taken breaks here and there to kind of look at different topics, um, but we preach through the whole text and we want to understand the entirety of the text. So um, we begin today uh, kind of going back to where we left off last week. And if you wasn't here last week, that's okay. Uh, because John 14 is where we ended last week, at the very end of it. Um, and Jesus uh, is introducing uh, disciples to one who is to come after him. And uh, so I, I want you to get out of this today is that the Holy Spirit, he's our helper and today is that he instructs us in the way of the gospel and how it goes forward. And, and that is vital in the life of the believer. As you understand it, who the person of the Holy Spirit is and how he works himself out in your life. And it is distinct in each person's life, although he is the same God. He uses your gifts and abilities and talents. Um, and what we see is... Uh, that he instructs us in the way of the gospel and what our part is to be, but also into what his part is. 
Um, so the main idea, and what I want to get across to you, is the Holy Spirit is not a new person. We don't see him just show up in the pages of New Testament Scripture. And all of a sudden, he's there. Uh, instead, uh, he has been involved in redemptive history um, throughout the history of Israel, the beginning of creation, the inception of Christ, and the birth of the church. Uh, so he is not someone who just came along one day and he's introduced to us. Uh, we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit active throughout redemptive history as we look at the pages of Scripture, as we open them up and we observe them. Um, so what I want to get across to you mainly today is that through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came, he died, he was buried, and he was raised for your sins, is the fact that through that message, the Holy Spirit has unveiled the grace of God by faith alone and not by a religious system of works. Because I think many of us today struggle with that. Even in Christianity, we struggle with that idea that it is by some means of works and also what Christ has done that we obtain reconciliation back to God. So we've been building up to this in previous sermons. Um, Jesus is preparing to leave his disciples in John chapter 14. He's been talking about what's to come with the cross, uh, with his crucifixion. What is that to mean? And then he also is letting them know that he's going to be leaving them. And you have to think about this. He's been with them over three years at this point. Just how close he would have been to them. Um, he was more than just a master to them, a rabbi. He was a friend. He was one that they loved. And that, you know, they spent their entirety of the, those three years with. They left their livelihood for him. Can you imagine that a man walks up to you one day and he says... Quit doing that. Everything that you base your income on, that you base your family on, and he says, follow me. And without hesitation, you do so. And that's what they did over those three years. As he taught them, he instructed them, they saw his miracles and his ways. And it's amazing to me um, just what they would have witnessed in those years, John even writes towards the end of his gospel that there is so much that Jesus did that it would fill all the libraries of the earth if he were to write about it. So he has a limited in scope of what Christ has done. So they leave him. So think about being with a person for three years and all of a sudden he begins to talk to you about how he's going to die and how you are to proceed forward after that. And with that, maybe a sense of fear, anxiety sets in because you don't want that person to leave. We're like that with our parents, right? We're like that with our siblings and other people in our lives that are important to us. We love them. We have affection for them. We don't want that person to leave our life. In the very same way the disciples saw Christ as one that they did not want to leave, they couldn't understand what were they to do when he did leave. And they still didn't understand even when he told them that I'm going to send a helper. Because what we see many of them do is to go back to their old way of life, their old means of life, and to kind of forsake the ministry at that point in time. We know the disciples went back to the fishing boats, and it wasn't until the day they saw Jesus on the shore that they dove in, they swam to the shore to meet him. So fear would have set in, anxiety, 
And the Gospels lay all this out. And we also must remember in John chapter 1 that in the incarnation that Jesus, if you remember, he came to tabernacle among men. It says that. He came to dwell among men. That comes out of Exodus 40.24. It's this understanding that when God, the Israelites, had a tabernacle, they had a tent, and that God would come down and he would dwell among his people. And in the very same way, it says in 40.24 of Exodus, a cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So we have this understanding when Jesus' inception occurs, and we have the God-man with the disciples, he tabernacled and he dwelled among them. What does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? Well, if Jesus is leaving, God is no longer dwelling with his people, the disciples. What is Jesus promising here? He is promising, not only am I leaving, but I'm going to send one who's going to indwell you. Um, this goes back, again, to the Old Testament concept of God meeting with his people. So, as the time was leading up towards his death on the cross, Jesus promised his disciples that he will send a helper. Um, and I want you to hear this again. It's in verse 16 and 17. He says, of John 14... He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And then if you go on down to verse 26, it says, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So, when you think about the promise he makes disciple, and he tells them, it'll be more beneficial for me to leave you than me to stay with you because I am sending one that's going to be a helper to you. We've talked about this over the past couple of weeks. The reason that is, the reason that is greater is because that the Spirit of God will dwell within you. It will no longer be an external dwelling as God in the Old Testament had done or Jesus was doing with the disciples but he is saying I'm sending one that will indwell you that will be with you forever so why is that so because the spirit would not just dwell with man but he would indwell him this is the reason that Jesus said disciples would do greater works because you think about it, we discussed this in small group a couple weeks ago. How is it plausible that we would do greater works than Jesus himself would? How is it to think about when it comes back to the ministry of Jesus and how he healed the sick, he caused the blind to see, he made the lame to walk, he controlled creation by his words, and he rose people from the dead? I could go around and do a survey in here. And ask you all those questions. Have you done any of them? And the reality of them, if it is, is that you have done none of those things. So how is it that Jesus would say you would do greater things than those things? Well, the reason is because while these physical works were astonishing, the spiritual work that the Spirit would accomplish was a far greater miracle. So as the Spirit dwells in the life of the believer and we go out and we share the gospel message of Jesus Christ... We are spiritually doing miraculous things through the Holy Spirit. 
which is far greater than anything that Jesus did. And that is what he is saying. It is far greater than any physical ailment that he healed or that he raised somebody from the dead or he controlled the winds. Is the fact that we have the power by the Holy Spirit to speak God's word and change the lives of people in our life. That is a far greater work. It is the mission of our church. It is the mission that we were given um, in the Great Commandment, in the Great Commission, sorry, that we are to go out and share that good news with the world around us, with our community, our neighbors, people we work with. It is a far greater miracle. But before we dive too deep into the Holy Spirit day, I want to explain briefly what the Spirit is and why it is not a, this is not a comprehensive investigation of what this, the person of the Holy Spirit. I can't do that in four weeks. It's not possible. It would take some time. But I do want to make sure you understand the Spirit is not a mystical or mysterious force sent out by God to accomplish His works. We treat him as such a lot of times. So he is not a mysterious or mysterical, uh, mystical force to accomplish God's works. He is not the force of Star Wars, even though as much as I love it. He is not that way. Um, he is a person. He is the third person. He has specific purposes and administrations that he fulfills as that third person of the Trinity. Church, don't be tricked into thinking that he is just a spirit that goes out and does God's bidding for him. He is an intelligent being. He is the third person of the Trinity. And the second part is not, being, not a being that shows up only on Sunday mornings or when the church decides to gather collectively. Now, why that's important, I pass a church usually about every day, especially when I come here, their church sign says, the Holy Spirit meets here, come meet with him too. It's a wrong idea of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not come and dwell with us as we meet collectively on a Sunday morning, but he dwells and he lives in the life of the believer, and as we collectively come together, we experience him and we worship him. We miss that oftentimes, as if... All of a sudden, the Spirit is going to drop and fall on us here by gathering. And what happens the other six days of the week is that we don't worship God as we should. Because we think that there's something mystical or mysterious that's going to happen on Sunday. And that He's going to show up in our life. And He's going to teach us some great truth. And we are to leave here and then not depend on Him the next six days. Until we come back to this place. And it is time to move away from that idea and understanding that the Spirit of God lives in you each and every day. And that will influence the next few weeks as we look at how it is that He actively works in our life. When we look at Galatians as we dive deeper into it. Because I'm going to move from John 14 to Galatians chapter 5 for a few weeks. And I hope that you can begin to see that play out. And there's no way I can do a comprehensive study on the Holy Spirit. As I already mentioned, it would take months to years to accomplish. When you think about He hovered above the depths of the water at creation, or He provided the Word of God through the law and the prophets, how He empowered Israel, gave gifts of tongues to men, and many other subjects we could focus on, we could spend um, a great deal of time on the subject of of this person of the Holy Spirit. 
But this four weeks doesn't provide that to us. So um, I want you to listen to this quote um, by St. Basile the Great as he captures the complexity of the Holy Spirit. He says, What does the Spirit do? His works are ineffable in majesty and innumerable in quantity. How can we even ponder what extends beyond the ages? Think about that. How can we ponder what extends beyond the ages? What did he do before creation began? How great are the graces he showered on creation? What power will he wield in the age to come? He existed, he pre-existed, he co-existed with the Father and the Son before the ages. Even if you can imagine anything beyond the ages, you will discover that the Spirit is even further beyond. So in our finite minds as humans, we can't even begin to grasp the fullness of this person. But what we do know is that his word illuminates to us who he is and, and his works and what he does. So I want to flip over to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as we read God's word. 1 through 15. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have, comp sorry. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if our brothers still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Sorry, I went on there. Thank y'all. So I want to begin to look at some specific ministries of the Spirit and what He provides to believers. And I want to go back to John just for a second, even though we just jumped to Galatians. So why do we need a helper? Like, why does Jesus use that term, helper, in terms of when it comes to the Holy Spirit? And what we see throughout the Old Testament into the New is that term is interchangeable 
and used for the Lord often. Psalms 54.4 says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 118.7 says, The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Psalm 124.8, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So you see this constant theme by the psalmist, and I can go back through the Old Testament, and you would have an understanding that they always saw God as their helper. They understood that to be the case. The common theme is presented here that a Christian should not fear, nor be concerned, because God is his helper. So despite what you're going through, despite the circumstance of your life, Despite whatever may be happening ongoing, we have to understand that the Spirit is our helper. Jesus calls him that for a reason. He is one that we should not fear or be concerned about life because he is our provision, he is our hope. I find it interesting that King David in 124.8, the verse I read, associates God as helper with his sovereignty. He doesn't just say that God is a helper and that he'll, he'll do the best he can. But he goes back and he says, Who made heaven and earth? That is the God who is our helper. So when you go out and you look at creation and you consider that and you think about the beauty of creation and you look at the stars and the moon and all that creation just gives us, how wondrous it is, we know that the God who made that is our helper. He is the one that lives within us. He is the one that comforts us and brings us alongside. So why is it easy that Paul can say that in faith, and he can talk about the gospel, why is it easy for us to go out and to be able to share the gospel? Because we know that the Holy Spirit is the one who is in us living internally. Why can I stand up here who... I don't like to talk in front of people. It's not really my thing, as you probably can tell. But at the same time, the Spirit of God is ultimately going to direct the paths of my words and work in your life. You know what that does for me? It takes anxiety away. I don't have to worry about what I say because He will work. So that is the helper. That is what Jesus promised. And with that, he says, greater things that we are to do. I want to keep coming back to that because that's what we're building off of. So again, John 14, 26, with the helper, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I want to bring that verse back around because by reminding them of what Christ has said and done, the Helper will illuminate this remembrance and teach them all things. So what does the Spirit most of all do in our lives? What, it should, what should it be doing? One, it enables us to share the gospel. He does. Two, He also reminds us of the good news of Jesus. And that is what He is telling them here. He says that He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He illuminates that teaching of Christ. And as the disciples are living out their life, when Christ is gone, he reminds them of the words of Jesus. 
And not only does he remind them of the words of Jesus, but it also makes it applicable to their lives. Because Jesus often spoke in parables and stories because he understood the disciples what they were to go through, but they weren't there at that point yet. You think when Paul was being beaten and he was being shipwrecked, he was being mocked, what do you think pushed him along? I think it was these words right here, that the Spirit was working in him and helping him to move along and remember the words of Christ. See, the Spirit, he brings a fuller understanding to Christ's teachings, especially as it pertains to the application of church life. And that's what we're going to focus on over the next few weeks, especially, and today as well. So the, the New Testament writers experience... Uh, what their experience is tangible ways of how they're to go about when Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself that's the greatest that's the second commandment what does that look like Jesus states that he makes a statement he he tells us about the good Samaritan and he uses other examples and stories but in church life what does that really look like and how do we do it the Spirit is what draws us to that. You know, despite maybe disagreements or the fact that someone may annoy you in your church body, how do you love them anyways? You love them because of the Spirit that dwells within you. It is God within you. Because he le if He left you to your own, uh, you would, we wouldn't like each other very much. It is the Spirit of God that works in us, through us. And it, it is, shows itself in very tangible ways. And I'm glad as a church body I've had the chance to experience this over the past several months. To see people go out and to minister to people who are in the homeless community. Minister to families here. Why do we do that? Because it is fruit by which we show that the Holy Spirit lives in our life. So how does the Spirit help us? So I want to examine that in Galatians 5. He provides us with a new heart and new desires. I'm going to pretty much hang around that today. He provides us with a new heart and new desires. It is impossible for the rest of Galatians to be important to you if you don't understand this truth. That this is what the Holy Spirit brings. He brings about life inside of that which was once dead. The next few weeks it will play out. He instructs us towards holy living by A, fostering a hatred towards sin and wrongdoing in our life. And producing B, producing good works and godly character within us. So it's twofold. He is chipping away at the old. He is getting away, uh, rid of it. And he's bringing about his good nature within the side of us to change us. To bring about and produce good works. That's what he does. And we call that sanctification because he is separating us from our old selves. From that of the world, the way the world thinks and their worldview, To be like-minded to him. And the final thing, and I'm looking forward to this, it's the last sermon. He creates a sacrificial and communal love primarily within the 
body of the church towards others. The effects of that and, and what that has on the world outside um, are impactful. It will be great. We wonder why it is that the New Testament church saw many people coming to Christ and understanding the good news about him. It was tied back to the local church and his spirit and what he was doing through that local community. So I look forward to going there. But the first point I, want to, I really want to focus on today, he provides with a new heart and a new desire. So let me ask you this. What was the purpose of circumcision in the Old Testament? So I'm not going to go back to Genesis 17. There's a lot to read there. But I want you to understand the Abrahamic covenant with this idea. It wasn't just separating Israel from that of other cultures. Because actually other cultures as well around the area, Egypt, Syria, practiced circumcision to some degree. So it wasn't anything necessarily new although God told his people to separate themselves. Um, what one pastor stated, and I really liked this, was that circumcision was a visible, continuous reminder that Israel owed its existence to God who created them out of nothing. So if you remember the story of, of Genesis chapter 17, the Abrahamic covenant, it is the fact that God comes to Abraham one day. Abraham's Asian years. His wife is Asian years. They have not had a child yet. They tried to produce their own ability to have a child, and that went really bad. And what we see is a promise laid out by God. He says, basically in his covenant, that he is going to make a great nation out of Abraham. And he's not talking about just a physical nation there. He is speaking of a spiritual nation. Meaning that out of Abraham, out of his descendants, would become what we now know as the church. That all of those who are called unto Christ are Abraham's descendants. That the church here today, we are spiritual Israel. And that is what it's ultimately pointing to. Knowing that Israel itself would be disobedient. And he gives them the sign of circumcision to help them understand that here is my covenant with you, and this is my expectation for you, is to live by the covenant and by the circumcision and the law. Why does he give them the law and circumcision? He gives it to them because he understands that they can't uphold it. See, that's the thing about man. We cannot uphold our end of the bargain, our end of the deal. But God never goes away from it. He never breaks his own covenant or his own promises. So circumcision ultimately acts as a picture to show us that we cannot live up to the works or the deeds or the law of God. That in our nature by ourselves we cannot somehow come alongside of God and, and do good things and at the same time, you know, earn salvation. God was gracious in that he would provide the solution to sin through Abraham's line despite Israel's ongoing disobedience. Okay, this is going back to Genesis 17. Circumcision is proof that despite man breaking his end of the covenant, God never does. And we see it time and time again in the New Testament. We see it here in Galatians, God referencing back to that. Oh, 
Paul brings up this surgery that happens eight days, something that's kind of you know, gruesome in, in a sense. Why would he bring that up? Because those in Galatia were placing that law back on to the new believers, saying that if you're going to be a part of the body of Christ, that you have to add this plus Christ. You have to be circumcised plus Jesus. And let me tell you, the work of Christ is complete and finished in its work alone. There is nothing that we add to it. And there is nothing we can do to take away from it. God is always faithful. But God does not leave us this way. hope you understand that. He never does. He never leaves Israel that way. Circumcision was only a shadow of something greater to come hope you see that is a shadow of something greater to come so why does Paul contrast circumcision with the spirit giving us a new heart that's what he's doing here that's why we see the spirit at work through faith it says so I want to take you back through some passages I'm just going to read them I'm not going to expound upon them and I'm hoping that you can use some logical conclusion to see where I'm going Ezekiel 36, 22-27. Remember, this is not just talking about ethnic Israel, but it's talking about spiritual Israel. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God. When you gather you, you from all the countries and bring you into your own land, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. Listen to this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So even in the Old Testament, Ezekiel is prophesying that there is a day to come that God no longer will require circumcision of the heart, or circumcision, but he will do a circumcision of the heart. That the spirit of God will be what changes us. It will be what produces within us the ability to have life. That's why it says give you a heart of flesh, meaning a new heart. Not one that's a stone that is dead and, and not active and alive, but one that is living and active for God. It says he will remove that heart of stone and put a new heart and a new spirit will be put within you. Meaning his spirit will be within us, living in us. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Very similar. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, that goes back to circumcision. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother. 
saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Again, Jeremiah prophesying about the coming of the Spirit, of a day to come that when the, the covenant of old, and when he's talking about when they brought out of Egypt, the Sinai covenant with Moses, it was reiterated back to Moses what had been taught to Abraham. Going back to circumcision, going back to the law, and saying, uphold my statutes. And here's the thing, if you go to Romans 4, you understand this to be true. That the law and obeying the statutes of God was never a mechanism for salvation. What does Romans 4 tell us? That Abraham was saved by faith. He was saved by faith. So why the law then? Well, the law points us to the fact that we are sinful. We can't uphold it. You can't love your neighbor as yourself on your own. You can't love God as you should on your own. But what it's telling us here is that the law also, though, as a new spirit is placed inside of us, we have a desire to follow the law because we love God and we are obedient to Him. Job 33, 4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Then I'm going to take you to Romans 2. And I hope this brings it all together for you. As you've seen in the Old Testament, God promising to put a new spirit within us. And then Paul kind of, you know, putting the, the bow on it, so to say. Romans 2, 25-29 says this, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. So if you think you can uphold the law, go ahead and be circumcised. But you can't. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, as good as that may be, that you try to uphold circumcision, it is worthless and useless if you can't uphold the entirety of the law. Remember the rich man that comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I've done all the law, I've upheld it. And Jesus says, oh great, well go and sell all your possessions then and follow me. And he, well, and he walks away and he's broken hard and he's sad. Well, by that statement alone, we know that he's not upheld the law because what? He has put his wealth, he's put everything else above that of who God is. He says, my wealth is what satisfies me, not God. So I'm not willing to leave that wealth. Instead, I'd rather stay with it. And he walks away sad, brokenhearted. See, he considered himself a religious man, a man who upheld the law. But at the end of the day, nor the law nor uncircumcision or circumcision is what saves us. It says, So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Paul's playing with words here. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who merely one outwardly. You get that? So no one is merely a Jew who's one outwardly. This goes back to the spiritual idea of, of what was the Israelite? Who is Abraham's descendants? It's not by DNA. 
but it's by a spiritual change. So for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. And we're getting at the heart of the matter. But a Jew is one inwardly. And the circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So where is the true circumcision at? It is one of the heart. It is what the Spirit does inside of us that matters. Not what the law or our deeds, or this, in this case, circumcision does. That's why Paul says, you might as well, if you're going to go back and be circumcised and think that that adds some value to your salvation, you might as well not even consider yourself of the faith. And that person causing you that trouble, I wish he would just cut it off. That's what he's saying. Masculate himself. Because that is a false teaching to Paul of the greatest degree of teaching that we can in some way obtain our salvation by the works that we do. The Spirit of God has come to indwell those, again, who believe in the sacrificial work of Christ and His resurrection, making them new. That's who the Spirit indwells. It renews our minds and sets our purposes and affections on the things of God. That's different. It's different than what Romans 3.10 tells us. When no man is seeking after God, we only look after our own ways. We only desire after our own hearts. But what does the Spirit of God do? He sets His... He indwells us and our affections change. The way that we look at life changes. He renews our minds. So that we know that our good works are not good enough. If I can get anything out of you today, I hope that you understand that. You can be, you know, a philanthropist. You can be the greatest person in the world. You can give all your money away to good causes and go out and serve the homeless community even. You can do whatever you want to do out of goodness and think that is that good enough. See, life is not a balancing act. God, we do not come before him one day and he say, place your deeds before me on a scale. And on that scale, you hope that 51% of your, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. And it is a weighing system. God does not look at life that way. He does not look at your, you that way in order to grant you into eternity with him. kind of like a climbing a mountain towards God we've created in Christianity this idea that we'll just work alongside Jesus and that'll be good enough if I come to church enough if I go to Bible study enough if I read my word enough if I do my devotionals enough if I pray enough if I do enough good works that's good that's really all I need at the end of the day I don't need to make Jesus really Lord of my life he can be my sacrifice, but not necessarily my Lord. Paul was much like that. And I'll tell you this, Isaiah 46, I'm sorry, 64, 6 says, Good deeds are like filthy rags for the Lord. So your, your good deeds, when you try to 
prop them up against the holiness of who God is, it is like filthy rags. He does not look at your good works as anything good. Because in his holy nature, he sees only one thing as good, and that is the life of Christ. Philippians 3, 3-7. It's a great verse, set of verses. For we are the circumcision. You see that? We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glorify in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Listen to Paul's resume here. (laughs) Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. So if anybody has reason for confidence in the flesh or deeds, it's Paul. He says, anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. So when you put your spiritual resume up beside that of the holiness of God, I can tell you this, that it is like filthy rags. That Paul understood it to be that way. He said, if, if anyone is to brag, I can brag, I can boast. And there's a lot of people in the church today who could do the same. Of all the good deeds they do, of all the good works, but it matters not to the Lord when it pertains to salvation. What does matter to Him is if we believe the good news about Christ. If we believe the good news that Jesus was put to death and that His death by that act God punishes him in our place and he gives us the righteousness and the goodness of Christ. And not only that, Paul says it's foolish for us if we just believe that Jesus died for our sins and was left not resurrected. But by the power of God that he was buried and he was resurrected three days later. See, the reason I bring this up is because the Spirit does not indwell you if you do not believe these things. That's from the Word of God. This isn't coming from Jeff's mouth. This is just teaching from Scripture and understanding that no one comes into the Father unless it's through the Son and what the Son has accomplished. And the final thing this matters for is we live in obedience out of love Good works, get this, is saying, that, saying to God, here is what I have done to obtain something, yet you can't, while obedience and love is saying, God, I love you, and you do good works because God obtained something that you could not. So I hope that makes sense. Meaning that, I'll read it again to you. So good works is saying to God, here's what I've done to obtain something. Meaning that you take something before God and you say, God, I, I lived this life. I've done great works. I've done good things. My, my good outweighs my bad. Yet you can't. But obedience is different than that. Obedience is the recognition, one, that you can't come to God that way. And realizing your sinful nature. And realizing what Christ has done on your behalf. And coming to God in thankfulness and saying, God, although I could not give my life because it is 
with sin. But Christ has given his life, a perfect life. Then, Lord, I love you because of that. And I want to live for you because of that. And that's going to be important in the weeks to come because for you to understand why you should hate your sin and why you should take joy and love your neighbor and all these other things that the Spirit brings about us, it is impossible for you to do unless you understand your nature versus the fact that God saved you through His Son, Jesus. If we don't get the first part right, I can guarantee you the next portions aren't going to matter to you. Because you can, you can go by Paul's words in the second portion of Galatians 5. And you can live by that. And live by a moral code, but it will not save you unless you understand that first part of Galatians. That the Spirit of God dwells in you and that He dwells in you through faith in the fact of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. Not that you have done, but what He has done. Remember Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Spirit of God is given to us first to change our very nature. As we finish here, as He gives us a new heart, we'll see in the verses come in the following weeks, we are at war with our old nature. This is spoken of throughout the New Testament. Constantly at war. Constantly at conflict with our old selves. That nature that lives within us that wants what we want. But the good thing is, if the Spirit's living inside of you, you know that tussle. You know that struggle. My warning to you is, is if you don't feel that, you should ask the question, is the Spirit really dwelling within me? Because if so, you're going to be waging war against yourself and hoping that He's putting to death sin in our life and also leading us to, towards obedience in Christ. And our fruits will prove that our new nature um, is there and evident. And it's producing fruit within us. Do you get changed overnight when the Spirit comes within you? No, you don't. That's because we live in this mortal body, this fleshly body. Paul writes these things so we may evaluate our lives and make sure we are in the faith. So remember this what the Holy Spirit has done in your life, what He's capable of doing in your life, is a surgical intervention of the spiritual side. It's not physical, it's spiritual. He does a spiritual surgery on your heart in order to give you a new one and take the old one out. So, if you're a believer here, my, my hope is that you feel encouraged by this message, especially in the weeks to come, and challenge yourself and say, Am I living more in the flesh in the sense of trying to please God or am I resting in the fact of what Christ has done on my behalf and living for Him because of that? There's a difference in loving God to try to prove something to God versus saying, God, I'm thankful and I love you. There's a difference. <clears throat> I want to finish with this verse from Galatians 5, 5 and 6. And I'll have Mike and them come up. It says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. I know that's true of a believer. We eagerly wait for hope of righteousness. We are made righteous now because of Christ before God. 
but I know all of us yearn for that day where we shed the fleshly body that we have and we yearn for something greater and more. And verse 6 says, For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts. The law doesn't save. It doesn't do anything. But it says, For anything, but only faith, working through love. See, there's a very tangible aspect of a new believer. And we're going to see that in the weeks to come. When we look and we say, and, and, and Paul's given this to the Galatians and through the New Testament writings he gives, it's us to be able to reflect on our lives and say, you know what, what does my life look like? Am I tangibly living it out? Am I actually showing people that I love them in ways that God is bringing forth? It tells us in Ephesians 2.10 that God produces or provides good works for us to walk in. So the question is, are we being obedient to the Lord? And is that obedient coming out of the fact that we are indwelt with His Spirit? So I'm going to have Mike come up. Um, and I'm just going to pray as we finish up the day. Father, just thank you for this afternoon, this morning. Um, as we have looked at your word, and I know it's a, a broad range of, of topics in certain ways, but to draw upon the fact that the law and, and good deeds does not save us, but it is those things that we enjoy doing because we love you, because, God, you saved us. It's a different way of looking at life. It's a different way of any worldview or any religious system teaches. We tend to think that if we just do enough, if we climb that mountain of religiosity, if we put together a good enough spiritual resume that you will be pleased, Lord. But the good news is, God, that you don't depend upon that. But that we have one that intercedes on our behalf, the person of Christ who shed his blood for us so that we may have life through you. And that we may have it abundantly, joyfully. Lord, I pray for the week to come that this would sit on us, sit on our minds and our hearts. For the believer that encourages them, for those who have not considered belief, may this open their hearts, open their eyes, help them understand that, Lord, we are free to rest in you and your accomplished work. And that out of that, Lord, we joyfully live in obedience to you. In your name I pray, amen.